0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 21, the book of Romans, chapter 9, continued. One of the great theological questions within Christianity is... Why did God judge only some of Israel and not all as being part of his true Israel? Or even more basic, what is true Israel, to use Paul's terminology, as contrasted to the common or the ancestral Israel that most of the Old Testament talks about? Now today we're going to work towards attempting to answer those questions. Along the way, the Apostle Paul is really going to meddle with your minds. Some tough issues and the obvious questions they raise among reasonable thinking people are going to confront us head on. Some of these questions are things that serious God-seekers those who are not yet believers might ask. And if they're not given a proper answer, they could just fold up their Bibles and walk away. So let's focus today. Let's learn how to understand and respond to these tough issues so that we can be the good and effective ambassadors for Messiah that we're supposed to be. Now Paul has spent a good portion of his time in penning his letter to the Roman congregations addressing the issue of Israel's election as God's chosen people because clearly, as he explains salvation and the place of Gentiles and why Jews must accept Yeshua, he did not want anyone to get the idea that somehow God had rejected all of Israel for the disobedience of some of them. He also didn't want a false conclusion drawn that even though some of Israel in fairness, probably most of Israel refused to accept the Messiah that God sent them which opened the door to Gentiles being offered the salvation of Yeshua that Gentile believers had as a religious group therefore replaced Israel as a religious group as God's chosen people and his new elect versus his old elect so to speak so Paul uses the well-known Jewish history of the patriarchs to show a pattern for how God operates in his sovereign election of individuals and also of groups of people to be his own and as an illustration of what true Israel is as opposed to merely common or ancestral Israel, he also uses these same illustrations of the patriarchs. Now I want to pause here to say that the proofs and the illustrations he uses once again make it self-evident that while Paul is certainly not excluding Roman Gentiles, he has been for some time much more addressing himself to the Jewish Romans. Now I say self-evident because for one reason Paul referred to the patriarchs as belonging to the Hebrews and he referred to Isaac as our father, clearly a reference to his own Jewish heritage. For another reason, Jewish history would not have been common knowledge or frankly terribly relevant for Gentiles. And although for believing Gentiles who studied the Torah, they certainly would have heard at least partly about these Hebrew patriarchs, the patriarchs were in no wise part of their Gentile cultural upbringing. And by Paul's day, since it was the synagogue where Jews met, and where Gentile believers attended, then it was far more Jewish tradition and regulations, halakha, that were taught and discussed, rather than the scriptural Torah. Now I think it's also an invaluable lesson for the modern church to take Paul to heart and actually actually hear him in Romans 9. Because Paul is using his own family history, The history of the Jewish people as taken from the Torah to explain how salvation works and through whom God created the pathway to redemption. And redemption certainly did not come through chosen Gentiles. Let's reread part of Romans chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 10. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that will start on page 1412. 1412. We're going to do Romans 9 starting at chapter 10. And even more to the point is the case of Rivka, Rebecca. For both of her children were conceived in a single act with Isaac, our father, and before they were born, before they had done anything at all, either good or bad, so that God's plan might remain a matter of his sovereign choice, not dependent on what they did, but on God who does the calling. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And this accords with where it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So are we to say it's unjust for God to do this? Heaven forbid. For to Moses he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will pity whom I'll pity. Thus it doesn't depend on human desires or effort, but on God who has mercy. For the Tanakh says to Pharaoh It is for this very reason that I raised you up so that in connection with you I might demonstrate my power so that my name might be known throughout the world. So then he has mercy on whom he wants and he hardens whom he wants. But you'll say to me, well then why does he still find fault with us? After all Who resists his will? Who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me this way? Or has the potter no right to make from a given lump of clay this pot for honorable use, that one for dishonorable Now what if God, even though he was quite willing to demonstrate his anger and make known his power, patiently put up with people who deserved punishment, were ripe for destruction? What if he did this in order to make known the riches of his glory to those who are the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? That is, to us, whom he called not only from among the Jews but also from among the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not loved, I will call loved. And in the very place where they were told, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. But Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Referring to Israel cries out, even if the number of people in Israel is as large as the number of grains of sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For Adonai will fulfill his word on the earth with certainty and without delay. Also, as Isaiah said earlier, if Adonai Zevaot had not left us a seed, we would become have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. So what are we to say? This, the Gentiles, even though they weren't striving for righteousness, have obtained righteousness. But it is a righteousness grounded in trusting. However, Israel, even though they kept pursuing a Torah that offers righteousness, did not reach what the Torah offers. Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness as being grounded in trusting. But as if it were grounded in doing legalistic works, they stumbled over the stone that makes people stumble. As the Tanakh, the Old Testament, puts it, Look, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will trip them up, but he who rests his trust on it will not be humiliated. Now, since the main issue for the moment remains election, then the core question about election becomes, how exactly does God choose? How did God choose Isaac, but not Ishmael? That's not too terribly hard for us to grasp, because Abraham's two sons were born at different times two different mothers one a slave girl the other Abraham's legal wife but how about Jacob and Esau how did God choose Jacob over Esau especially since they had the same mother they even shared the same womb because they were twins and by all natural custom Esau was the firstborn, since he emerged from the birth canal first. So how did God choose Jacob over his twin brother? I mean, after all, such a choice was not only irrevocable, but also it would have far-reaching and permanent effects on the lives of their children and their descendants. It gets even more dicey. Because, as Paul rightly points out, the choice was made while the children were still in the womb before either had a chance to sin or to prove their merit. Then, using Jewish cultural terms, Paul says that in the case of Jacob and Esau, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob Now, see, it's hard for Westerners to understand in the ancient culture of Paul's day and well before that just how upside down and shocking the notion was of an older brother being given less authority and status than his younger brother. I mean, it's it's simply something that is not done. It's against all custom and tradition. It's offensive. It's demeaning just to contemplate it. Paul takes it a step further by invoking the prophet Malachi, Malachi to show that God made the decision to love Jacob, but to hate Esau. Now I want to point out a couple of things about this passage. First, it was common rabbinic methodology to invoke a short scripture passage To back up what they were saying, or or better, what they're saying is but a midrash, an interpretive discussion of the quoted scripture passage. Now at first blush we might say, well gee, this kind of sounds like how modern day pastors tend to give sermons. They issue forth a verse or two of scripture and then they apply it as the basis of their subject. But that's not at all the same thing as we find the rabbis like Paul doing. In modern church sermons, short portions of scripture passages are regularly lifted from the Bible and used regardless of the actual biblical context. It's only the words chosen that somehow seem to back up what the pastor wants to communicate. However, the rabbinic method was that rather than spend the time and the ink to write down several Old Testament verses to form the entire passage they are associating to the argument, they quote just a short portion of it that's familiar enough now for the listener to recognize it. The idea is that everything that is said about that passage, that is the entire context, is supposed to come to mind Why do that? Why do it that way? Because in Paul's day before, there were no chapter and verse divisions or markers of any kind. They didn't exist. They couldn't say, well, as it says in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Rather, their only real choice was to quote a short passage as a reference point and then expect the listener to know the rest of the passage. But my second point is about what exactly Paul was communicating with this quote of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In Malachi 1, 1-5 we read this. A prophecy. The word of Adonai through Israel through Malachi. I love you, says Adonai. But you ask... Well, how do you show us your love? And Adonai answers, Esau was Jacob's brother. Yet I loved Jacob, but hated Esau. I made his mountains meslet. I gave his territory to desert jackals. Edom says, we are beaten down now. But we will come back and rebuild the ruins. And Adonai Zavah Ode answers, oh, they can build it but I will demolish then they will be called the land of wickedness the people with whom Adonai is permanently angry you will see it and you will say Adonai is great even beyond the borders of Israel see in Bible speak in this context to love means to accept to accept and to embrace to hate means to reject and to separate so the issue of the twins in Rivka's womb was not that God had decided upon a beautiful fondness for little unborn Jacob but an intense dislike for the unborn Esau Rather, Esau would be separated from his twin brother Jacob as far as concerns his destiny and inheritance to the line of promise that his father Esau was given from his his father Abraham and Jacob was given the inheritance to the line of promise. Esau was separated away from the line of promise. But as we see what happened historically, Esau became embittered because he felt insulted since he was the older brother he was the firstborn and by every human custom he, not Jacob should have inherited the line of covenant promise from his father Esau fought God's decision he did it by bedeviling Jacob's descendants thus bringing God's anger and wrath upon himself See, this is a big lesson for us. When someone else gets what we think we had every right to. And by human standards, you know what? Indeed, that may have been unfair. So, Paul, in typical rabbinic fashion, now anticipates the response from his straw man for God's election of Isaac and then Jacob so, says the straw man it is unjust for God to do this, it's just not right that is it's just not fair for God to choose Isaac over Ishmael since by human custom Ishmael is indeed the legitimate firstborn it's not fair for God to choose to accept Jacob as the heir to the promise but to reject Esau as the heir while they're still in their mother's womb. I mean none of those who were rejected had it had done anything wrong. Nothing did they do wrong to deserve such a rejection. None who were accepted had done anything right to earn such an acceptance. What is Paul's response to this accusation from his straw man? Heaven forbid! Folks, I sure hope you see the implications for us and for all humanity when we begin to see where Paul is going with this line of thought. God makes sovereign decisions about us based on some criteria known only to Him Often, no matter how positively or negatively that decision might affect us, what we have done, what we think, has nothing at all to do with God's decision as it concerns us. Now, to continue his response to the straw man's accusation that God is unjust, he's unfair for choosing in the manner he does, Paul quotes a passage from Exodus. There God says to Moses, I'll have have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will show pity to whom I pity. So to better understand what Moses is getting at, let's do what Rav Shaul, Rabbi Paul, expects his readers to do. Let's recall the scriptural context for this passage from Exodus that he just cited. So I'm going to read to you from Exodus 33, 14 through 20. This is the context for I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and pity on whom I pity. He answered, Set your mind at rest. My presence will go with you after all. And Moses replied, If your presence doesn't go with us, don't make us go on from here. For how else is it going to be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, other than by your going with us? That is what distinguishes us. Me, your people, from all the other peoples on earth. And Adonai said to Moshe. I will also do what you have asked me to do because you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. But Moses said, I beg you now to show me your glory. And he replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And in your presence I will pronounce the name of Adonai. Moreover, I will show favor to whomever I will. I will display mercy to whomever I will. But my face... He continued, you cannot see because a human being cannot look at me and remain alive. Now this entire passage is so interesting to go over, but I'm going to resist the temptation for now. (laughs) What is pertinent to our subject is this. Verse 16 of that passage says, I have found favor in your sight. It's Moses speaking. And since Moses figures he has found favor in God's sight, he decides to ask something from God that he knows God has not granted to other people. He asks God to show him his glory. And sure enough, God does not grant that to Moses. However, as a compromise, if you would, God says, Okay, but I will show you my goodness. And even more, God will show Moses how to pronounce his holy formal name, yud Vavhe. I know the complete Jewish Bible says Adonai, most other Bibles will say Lord, but the original Hebrew says yud heh vav or as some say Yahweh. And then God addresses Moses' statement that he's found favor in God's sight. So this is the context... God addresses Moses' statement that he has found favor in God's sight by saying, well, I show favor to whomever I will. And I display mercy to whomever I will. In other words, Moses, don't get too big-headed over this. You say you have my favor. You haven't done anything to deserve it. You haven't earned it. I simply chose and I show mercy to whomever I do for reasons that have little or nothing to do with the person that's involved. Paul's point is this, even Moses, Moses, the father of the Torah, the father of the law, God's mediator on earth, even Moses was elected due to God's mercy due to God's sovereign will it had nothing to do with any outstanding quality of Moses or anything Moses even merited Okay, so Moses was a good guy Moses was a righteous man in fact from an election standpoint only Yeshua stood above Moses among all humans ever born but what about the other end of the scale What about for the bad guys? What about for the unrighteous? So Paul addresses that matter beginning in Romans 9 verse 17. Now this illustration that Paul uses is about God's confrontation through Moses remember Moses is the biblical epitome of a good guy with Pharaoh the biblical epitome, of a bad guy. And God says to Pharaoh, the bad guy, it is for this very reason that I raised you up, so that in connection with you, I might demonstrate my power, so that my name might be known throughout the world. But it's not until we do what the good Rabbi Paul expects us to do, look at that passage in its full context, that we more deeply understand what he's getting at. I want to pause here for just a moment. I hope you Bible students, American and international, see that you need a good study Bible that has similar attributes to the complete Jewish Bible in that the many New Testament Texts which are actually Old Testament quotes are highlighted for you and you are given the book, chapter and verse they came from each time you come to an Old Testament quote in the New Testament you should turn your Bibles immediately to that passage in the Old Testament and you should read it in full you should read all around that little brief portion that's given to us in the New Testament so you get the entire context. That was the expectation you see of our New Testament author. He figured that's what you would do. You're supposed to. That was the norm for those days. Reading what little bit has been put down in our New Testaments and moving right along, that's not proper Bible study. You have to stop. You have to look up that Old Testament passage and you have to read it. Therefore, let's look at this passage in its larger context. Taken from Exodus 6, Exodus 6, pardon me. Exodus 9, 10 through 18. So they took some ashes from a kiln, (coughs) they stood in front of Pharaoh, (coughs) and threw them in the air. They became infected sores on men and animals. The magicians couldn't even stand in Moses' presence because of the sores which are on them as well as on the other Egyptians. But Adonai made Pharaoh hard hearted. So he wouldn't listen to them. Just as I had said to Moses. And Adonai said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Here's what I says. Let my people go so they can worship me. For this time, I will inflict my plagues on you yourself and on your officials and on your people so that you will realize I'm without equal in all the earth. You know, by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with such severe plagues that you would have been wiped off the earth. But it is for this very reason that I kept you alive to show you my power so that my name might resound throughout the whole earth. Since you are still setting yourself up against my people and not letting them go tomorrow about this time I will cause a hailstorm so heavy Egypt has had nothing like it from the day it was founded until now so Paul in verse 18 Romans goes on to say that this passage in Exodus demonstrates that not only will God have mercy upon whom he'll have mercy but he will harden those whom he will both ends of the scale wow that's just not like how we want to think of God is it want to know how God chooses he's not telling <laughs> he just decides so I guess I'm just standing around minding my own business and God suddenly decides to harden my heart before we address that difficult matter notice something else look at the Old Testament passage that Paul quoted as it appears in your New Testaments that's verse 17 where does that passage say one word about God hardening anyone and yet in verse 18 Paul acts as though he has just said something about God hardening people's hearts, and so Paul responds with God hardens whom he wants. See, this only works if we go to the passage in the Old Testament and read it more fully, because indeed this brief scripture passage Paul uses in Exodus nineteen is not sufficient. I mean Exodus nine from Exodus nine sixteen is not sufficient. But when we take the time to look up the entire chapter we see that in direct relation to this passage Paul quoted in Exodus 9.12 we read and and Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted. So there is the hardening that Paul was getting at and he expects his readers to understand. And this is a fine example of why we're to look up the entire passage. Don't just read right across it. Don't read right through it and go on. Now to address the obvious question that if you're paying attention, it ought to have invaded your mind. God could just as easily harden my heart as show me mercy. In either way, it seems often, to have little or nothing to do with my actions? Then what does God do? Flip a cosmic coin? So Paul straw man asks that very question, only a little more cleverly than I did. And the straw man says, Well, then why does God find fault with us? I mean, after all, who resists his will? excellent question if it's God who hardens us (laughs) so that we have little choice but to let our evil inclinations be our masters and then the end result is that we invariably do wrong in God's sight we sin then how can this be reasonably seen as our fault I mean, after all, if God has the power to harden our hearts against our will, or at least without our knowledge, then we are utterly powerless to do anything about it. So why should we bear responsibility for this? And in answer to that question that hardly reassures us, Paul says in verse 20, this one really hurts, who are you, human being, to talk back to God? That doesn't help very much, does it? shut up Oh, remember what your father used to say why do I have to do that, because I told you to it's the same idea those are Paul's words and you know what, they sound pretty arrogant his response to a straw man is to not actually answer the question but simply to shame him for even asking it you ask that question? And just to make it clear that there is no misunderstanding and just how strong Paul is in his reply, he quotes Isaiah Will what is formed say to him who formed it Why did you make me this way? Let us go again now to the fuller text of Isaiah to understand Paul's reasoning for using this particular passage as part of his argument. Isaiah forty-five, <clears throat> I'm going to read thirteen verses from it, so that we get, get the understanding of what's going on here. Verses one through thirteen Thus says Adonai to Korush, his anointed, whose right hand he has grasped so that he subdues nations before him and strips kings of their robes so that doors open in front of him no gates are barred I will go ahead of you leveling the hills shattering the bronze gates smashing the iron bar, uh, bars I will give you treasures hoarded in the dark secret riches hidden away so that you will know that I an eye, calling you by your name I am the God of Israel it is for the sake of Jacob my servant Yes, for Israel, my elect, that I call you by your name and I give you a title, although you don't even know me. I am Adonai, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am arming you, although you don't know me, so that those from the east, those from the west will know there is none besides me. I am Adonai, there is no other. I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being. I create woe. I, Ad, and I do all of these things. Heavens above, rain down justice. Let the clouds pour it down. Let the earth open so that salvation springs up, and justice sprouts with it. I, Ad, and I have created it. Woe to anyone who argues with his maker, like pot shards lying on the ground. Does the clay ask the potter, "What are you doing"? What's this you're making that has no hands? Woe to him who asks a father, of what are you the father? Or of the woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says Adonai the Holy One of Israel, his maker, you ask for signs concerning my children? You give orders concerning the work of my hands? I'm the one who made the earth. I created human beings on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and directed all of their number. I am stirring up Korish to righteousness. I am smoothing out all of his paths. He will rebuild my city. He will free my exiles, taking neither ransom nor bribes, says Adonai Ode. Boy, Isaiah was on that day. See, this, per- this person that this passage is about is King Korish. We know him better as Cyrus, the Persian king who defeated Babylon, thus ending the exile of the Jewish people. Here is a king who has no knowledge of, he has no relationship with the God of Israel, and yet God is using Korish and giving him great power. Notice that this entire passage in Isaiah centers around this continuing election of Israel as God's people. What does he say? Why is he doing this for Koresh? Why? It's for the sake of Jacob my servant yes for Israel my elect that I call you by your name and I give you a title although you don't even know me that's his motive but even more woe to anyone Jew or Gentile who would dare to ask God why he is showing such favor to Cyrus Cyrus was a pagan Gentile why he is showing such mercy to Israel since they have been so unfaithful to him that God finally exiled them to a foreign nation Babylon because of their rebellion The Lord makes it about as clear as it can get that He is sovereign over everyone, over everything. Why? Because He made everyone and everything. We have no right. We are in no position, as His created, to question any of the Creator's decisions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? None of your business. The Father of all things has decided. That's that. You know, in (laughs) Isaiah, do we hear the tone of a patient daddy lovingly answering his children's naive questions? I don't think so. Or do we hear the tone of a powerful God who is in no mood to have his choices and decisions questioned by by mere humans, who are little more than than lumps of clay that God in his mercy has chosen to give the gift of animation. And we continually read that there is very little that God won't do to other nations for the sake of Israel. Don't like that? Doesn't sound very fair? Too bad you don't get a vote. God's kingdom, folks, is not a democracy. We will not be electing Jesus Christ as its king. And by the way, what we are hearing is exactly how Judaism in Paul's day saw it. Did you know that? Even in the synagogue prayer book that's called the Siddur, in the regular weekday morning prayer, we find this passage. Who is there among all the works of your hands... Among those above or among those below, who could say to you, What are you doing? Now, I suppose it might be time to remind us all of something I taught about a long time ago. To love God is to obey God. To love God is to obey God. All of our nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about God, all the nice things we say about Him, the way we defend Him when we talk to non-believers, our prayers, walking through the doors of our congregation every time they're open, that's all well and good. But God does not count any of those things as loving Him Loving Him is when we are actively obeying Him. And the second thing we haven't talked about in a long while is asking God why concerning His decisions. See, why is Greek thought? It's not Hebrew thought. Why says that we have a mindset that we have the right to know. Why is fundamentally arguing with God. As we just heard from Isaiah, oh woe to anyone who argues with his maker. Like pot shards lying on the ground. He's talking about us. We're just pot shards lying on the ground. Does the clay ask the potter, what are you doing? What is this you're making that has no hands? Woe to him who asks a father, or of what are you the father? Or asks a woman, to what are you giving birth? So what Paul is saying is that we must acknowledge God as fully free and sovereign to assign to various humans different functions as he sees fit. For the ongoing fulfillment of the redemption of humanity and the world. That's his purpose. Every function we're assigned is not going to be the ones we seek. (laughs) Not even the ones that give us benefit sometimes in this life. Every function is not going to make sense to us, every function won't be lovely. Some of them will be painful. Some will feel most unfair. But Paul is never very far away from the issue of validating God's ongoing election of Israel as a set-apart people. So in verse 22 he asks the rhetorical question. What if God although he is quite willing to show his wrath to Israel so that they and their enemies both saw God's limitless power, nonetheless the Lord pulled his punches. And with love and patience, he didn't destroy Israel when they deserved nothing less. Implied in this rhetorical question is, whose business is it other than God's why he's doing what he's doing? But then Paul shifts course in verse 23. So now Paul asks the question, so what if God showed Israel both his wrath and his loving patience in order to show the people who were outside of his elect, outside of Israel, what they could have if somehow they became his people? What could they obtain by becoming part of his people? Answer? His great mercy. That's what you can obtain. And what if those people to whom he wanted to show his glory were a mix of Jews and Gentiles? Again implied is, who has the right to say he should or he should not? purpose to do this, even if the humans involved weren't particularly comfortable with it. And as the proof text of God's intentions and that His calling out of just common Israel and out of common Gentiles, this hybrid group if you would, a remnant that represents what Paul calls true Israel, a purified Israel that operates upon the ideals that God had always intended for those who worship Him. Paul uses, as his proof text, the book of Hosea. However, he doesn't use this Old Testament passage as he has with other passages he has chosen. Rather, he uses it more allegorically since the entire subject of Hosea chapter 2 is Israel that is here Paul uses a passage that is purely about the Jewish people but then he refrains it to demonstrate that at some point God's people will not only consist of the physical descendants of Jacob, Israel but will also include some number of Gentiles Hosea chapter 2 is so powerful that we would be wise not to pass it by. So open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. It's not a long chapter. Hosea chapter 2, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, starts on page 707. Hosea chapter 2. Nevertheless, the people of Israel will number as many as the grains of the sand by the sea, which cannot be measured or counted, so that the time will come when instead of being told, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the children of the living God. And then the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up out of the land, for that will be a great day, the day of Jesreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, meaning my people, and to your sisters, Ruchma, pitied. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she isn't my wife and I'm not her husband. She must remove her whoring from her face and her adulteries from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and place her as she was the day before she was born, make her like a desert, place her in a dry land and and, and kill her with thirst. I'll have no pity on her children, for they are children of whoring. Their mother prostituted herself. She who conceived them behaved shamelessly. And she said, I'll pursue my lovers who will give me my food and water wool, flax, olive oil, wine therefore I will block her way with thorns and put up a hedge so that she can't find her paths she will pursue her lovers but not catch them she will seek them but won't find them and then she will say, I'll go and return to my first husband because things were better for me then than they are now For she doesn't know it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, I who increased her silver and gold which they used for bail. So I will take back my grain at harvest time and my wine in its season. I will snatch away my wool and flax given to cover her naked body. Now I will uncover her shame while her lovers watch. No one will save her from me. I will end her happiness, her festivals, Rosh Hodesh, new moons, Sabbaths, all of her designated times. I will ravage her vines and fig trees, of which she says, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. But I will turn them into a forest, and wild animals will eat them. I will punish her for offering incense on the feast days of the bales. Would she decked herself with her earrings and jewels, pursuing her lovers and forgetting me, says Adonai. For now I'm going to woo her. I will bring her out to the desert and I will speak to her heart. I will give her her vineyards from there and the Akor Valley as a gateway to hope. She will respond there as she did when she was young, as she did when she came up from Egypt, on that day, says Adonai, you will call me She, my husband. You will no longer call me Bali, my master, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will never again be mentioned by name. When that day comes, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds in the air, the creeping things of the earth. I will break bow and sword, sweet battle from the land, and make them lie down securely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in grace, in compassion I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know Adonai. And when that day comes, I will answer, says Adonai, and I will answer the sky and I'll answer the earth and the earth will answer the corn and the wine and the oil and they will answer, Yesriel, God will sow. I will sow her for me in the land. I will have pity on lo ruchma, the unpitied. I will say to Lo Ami, not my people, you are my people. And they will say to me, you are my God. Clearly these verses from Hosea serve a dual purpose for Paul. One, they continue validating his underlying theme in Romans of this ongoing election of Israel as God's people. And that despite God's wrath upon them, and is at times turning his back on Israel, he never abandons them or rejects them completely. And two, that what is happening to and for Israel can also be applied in a whole other sense to Gentiles. Gentiles who were always low on me, not my people, become, thanks to God's mercy, part of my people. Without doubt, the buildup in Romans 9 that Paul has made to this point, making it clear that no one has a leg to stand on, to question God's purpose and His plans, is to bring us to the point of Hosea's prophecy. Whereby Paul is applying it both to the house of Israel and to Gentiles. God's mercy is available to every human being on planet Earth. Every. Yet, who among Israel and who among Gentiles are elected? To be true Israel, oh, that's another question. The bottom line is that not all are going to be elected. There is some mysterious divine paradox at work. Because at one time there's an element of predetermination operating, and yet... There is also another element of human freedom of choice that's involved. There is a redeemed Israel that consists of the descendants of Jacob on the one hand and yet there is also another level of redemption for Israel that is the Jewish believers of Yeshua on the other hand. Then there are the Gentiles who remain Gentiles and have decided to worship the God of Israel through Messiah Yeshua and yet God elects them as part of the purified true Israel even though they're not Jews so Paul's message to us is this at the end of the day when it's all said and done it is God's sovereign will And it is God's unmerited mercy that are the twin drivers of human history, of human destiny, and of the divine plan of redemption and restoration of the world. And we'll conclude Romans 9 and get into chapter 10 next time.